Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. This is Alex and I have the Friday crew here, including Natasha Moscarinas. Natasha, hello. Hello, hello. It is Fleet Week in San Francisco, so apologies for the background noise. If you hear fighter jets, we are not under attack. We are simply under duress because Natasha can't leave her house because traffic is bad. Um, <laughs> not suffering from similar effects is Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, do they have Fleet Week in Austin? No. We have ACL going on this weekend, but I am nowhere near it. So we're okay. What's that? Austin City Limits Music Festival. Oh, oh, oh. oh yeah, sorry. Yeah. I'm not hip to the acronym, but yeah. I have heard of the festival. Why aren't you going? Oh, um. <laughs> We don't have enough time to get into that. <laughs> All right. Speaking of not enough time, I'm going to run us through the show outline here because we have a lot to get through. We have three fascinating funding rounds from Charlo, Masterworks, and Cost Certified. We're going to talk about contrary capital and what it means to invest in community in 2021. Then we're going to talk a little bit about Africa through the lens of Google and some of their recent investments. And then we're going to wrap with talking about how EdTech is going all business and if that's good, bad, boring, or interesting. It's going to be an absolute blast. But Natasha, we're going to start with Charlo which has the coolest name, which you'll explain why, and also one of the cooler markets out there. Hell yeah. So Chalo means let's go in Hindi. It's actually one of the few phrases from Hindi that have entered my friend group today, and none of us are native Hindi speakers. But it's such a cute word. And in this case is really fitting for the startup. Chalo raised 40 million to digitize bus commutes in India. And it was built by the former founder of Carwale, which was a startup that allows people to sell and buy used and new cars. That founder basically realized that he wanted to work within transportation, but impact a bigger population of people. So he went for buses. And I was really excited to see him tackle one of the slowest to change areas of innovation in India. Well, one thing that really blew my mind about this particular startup is that I didn't know how important buses were to India. I mean, when I think about mass transit in India, I think of trains. I mean, maybe that's stupid. Maybe I've seen too much Bollywood, but like buses are apparently 48% of public transit trips in the country. So this is an enormous market given the geographic scale we're talking about, the number of folks and also the market share. I was also shocked that there were just three buses for every 10,000 people in India. I mean, this blew my mind. It's insane. And I mean, beyond even a supply and demand problem, when you get to the bus itself, there are a ton of inefficiencies, which is, I think, a lot of where Chalo tries to make a difference. So basically, it deploys GPS machines onto buses, which allow customers to track whereabouts of their commute. And it also helps buses offer tickets and monthly passes, which again, not a commonality. So Marianne, like you're saying, there's already such few buses, but for the few people who do get to the buses, Chalo is trying to get there and help them make their ride smoother. But they're not providing more buses, are they? They're just trying to like make it easier to ride the buses that exist. Yeah, I I actually want to bring that up with you guys too, because at this point, they aren't owning buses. They're trying to be more of I don't know if this is a fair comparison, but like keep trucking esque, they mm-hmm. like install machines onto buses instead of owning the buses themselves. Alex, I'm sure you have a take on why that is efficient from a business perspective. Mm-hmm. Question mark. Well, yeah, well, it's very capital efficient because if buses already exist, you don't have to spend X number of tens of thousands of dollars per bus to bring them onto the network. So if you are a startup that just raised 40 million, you can either buy Uh, 150 buses to pick a random number that sounds roughly correct or you know you can work with thousands of buses by installing gps tech onto them i'll just say that you know as someone who has spent time in a more developing economy that depended on buses to get around and didn't know when they were going to come if at all this is great and i think it's also kind of a testament to the fact that we are seeing um or have seen rising smartphone penetration amongst indian consumers which makes a service like this usable because you can't 
really interface with a GPS data feed if you don't have a data source, which is a phone. So it's cool to see what smartphone penetration unlocks in the country. And and hopefully this will lead to just, you know, less wasted time, better lives and better service. So it's kind of one of those holistic goods. That's mm-hmm. also a business, which is strange. I think so. Like, I think the only question mark I still have for Cello is because it doesn't own any of the buses, it will have to work with the Indian government and they are very hard to work with. And so Ooh. as we've seen from recent news, like working with difficult government structures can completely change a startup's trajectory. And so I hope down the road they own some or are able to avoid it. Side note about this company that I thought was cool is that they're using some of the funding to buy back stock options for the early employees and some of the investors. And I I think anytime a company does that, that's just, that's really cool. Absolutely. Using capital to immediately kind of put it back into the business uh, and the folks who built it. I do love that. Now let's talk about masterworks guys. We have discussed NFTs ad nauseum on the show. (laughs) I can't even say NFT without being mocked. That's a kind of testament to how we've treated them so far here on equity, but we are going to talk about masterworks, which put together a 110 million dollar round. They're calling it a series A guys, but I don't really think that's a fair description of it. Masterworks, if you don't know, is a place where you can put small amounts of money, one, two, three, four, five thousand dollars to buy fractional shares of physical art. So if you can't afford a $5 million painting, but still want the upside of it somewhere in your portfolio, well, you can buy 0.001% of it. And then if it eventually sells, you will get some return back. This is effectively like, uh, I don't know, IRL NFTs. So obviously NFTs have really helped us understand what it means to have fractional ownership. But Masterworks is interesting because Alex, like you said, it's physical goods and fractional ownership of that. So it makes money by selling paintings at a profit and then earning 20% of profit from a sale, as well as a 1.5% a year management fee, which altogether makes me just think about them being the middleman in an probably already existing but not mainstream sort of transaction, which is fine art. Actually, NFTs are usually not fractional. You can kind of buy them individually. But I think that the idea of fractional ownership has been kind of brought to the fore by Robinhood and other places where you can buy kind of a slice of an equity, if you will. So Masterworks is kind of like a weird combination of Robinhood and OpenSea. And it all involves art that you can't see because you don't actually own it. All you do is own a fraction of the upside. I think this is really cool. But I mean, to me, it is kind of the definition of a consumer exotic investment. Like this is like an endowment putting 1% into venture capital funds. This is like, you know, maybe you buy a couple of shares in an artist that you like. You can't afford one of their main works, which I think is dope. But at the same time, I'm curious what what fraction of folks out there actually have a favorite painter. Well, they said also that the average investor puts more than $5,000 into each painting. So, I mean, that limits, I think, the pool of people who can actually do that, right? Like how many people have $5,000 laying around just to invest in an art? Yeah. And also, if I had $5,000 in my art budget, (laughs) I would buy like three awesome paintings versus one fractional share in a painting that I can't see. And that's why, to me, the the NFT masterwork comparison kind of makes sense because you're you're, you're investing in a physical good, but you don't have it. And you don't get to enjoy it. No. What you effectively have is the digital rights to partial ownership of a (laughs) physical good, which is close-ish to the NFT idea of not really owning the thing, you know? Right, right. The argument that I think Lucas made either intentionally or unintentionally in his piece was that with alternative asset classes popping off in interest and in a lot of new coming investors, we see NFTs, we see Pokemon cards, we see Air Jordans being potential investments. Fine art is a more traditional segment of that class. And so his argument, I think, was like, it's a more predictable upside and downside. 
So maybe this is like a if in the scale of NFTs, it's a less risky version of it. That was kind of like my takeaway yeah. from the story. Marianne, one, one reason why I'm glad you're on the pod now is that you are bringing your reporting to the show and you have a venture capital round from this week that you were incredibly excited about. So please tell us about Cost Certified and why it has you, a homeowner, hype. Well, yeah. And also I'm a nerd for construction tech. So this, yeah. <laughs> this company, the idea for it came up this guy was a contractor. He had his own construction company and like trying to bill his clients, he realized was just a nightmare. So he was like, let me try to create something better than what exists. Right. So he came up with something that, first of all, if you've ever had to remodel a home, you know, there's like 50 million vendors, products that you have to choose in the process. It's overwhelming. It's stressful. You have to deal with a lot of like different systems and people. So what he came up with is, is what they're trying to build is like a e-commerce like experience. So when you're Say you're remodeling your kitchen, you can pick out the faucet, the cabinet, the color, everything, and put it all like in a cart. And at the end, you could see how much it's going to cost you. And it's all there in one place. So this just kind of simplifies things, makes it less of a surprise at the end. And I don't think anything like it exists that I know of. Yeah. And they're based in Calgary, which I thought was very, very cool. So Canadian company and uh, cost certified. It was 8.45 million, Marianne. Yes. Fuse led the round. They're a Y Combinator company. They went through, I think it was a summer cohort and they're about four years old. So this is actually their first round of external funding. They were bootstrapped till now. It's really cool. And they also, they have 72 million in annualized GMV, which I think Marianne works out to about two kitchens per year, give or take. <laughs> yeah. It depends on where you live. Right. But yeah, yeah they, it's just always cool when you, I feel like it's kind of a, one of those real world problems and that, that can, you know, construction is not typically considered sexy, but I, I feel like people underestimate. I mean, it's, it's in everybody's lives every day impacts, impacts us all in one way or another. So I was, I thought this was a really cool company. So often when we hear e-commerce, it's about making checkout faster on websites. And it's like, this is useful. It will probably make a lot of money and investors will be happy. But I agree, Marianne, like it was nice to see something like this applied and the focus, not just like, I don't know, helping. I'm sure they want to help customers spend more money down the road. And that's probably the return of investment they're going to prove. But just visualization on something difficult to understand feels like it's better for both parties, whether it's contractors trying to convince people to buy more things or people trying to see if they have room for more home renovations. Yeah, it's real time estimates. They want they want to build what they're calling the Amazon for construction. So it'll be cur- I'll be curious to see where they are in like a year or two. Yeah, I, I had the, the fun, fun role during the pandemic of helping my spouse pick out a new kitchen faucet for us. Oh, no. And- I did not realize, one, how much money you can spend on that, because that was crazy. Mm -hmm. And two, how do you choose? Yeah. Because there's 68,000 options, and you don't know which ones are in stock, which ones are actually in like Duluth. It was brutal. So I I think this is long overdue. It's probably going to do very, very well. All right. Now, ladies and gentlemen, community, we have talked about this on the show repeatedly. Natasha, we had, uh, didn't we have Lolita on the show? I think so. At some point, I'm sure. She seems like someone we would have on the show. And if we haven't, congrats, you were on the show in our hearts. Yes, there you go. <laughs> uh, but it turns out there's some news out from a group called Contrary Capital that put together a, a new venture capital fund with a kind of a community focus with a twist. So talk us through that. Yeah. So Contrary Capital actually started a few years ago, part accelerator, part venture fund with an explicit focus on backing student entrepreneurs within universities. So kind of thinking about like your brightest classmates, whether that's you or someone else, and Contrary wanted to back your idea. And that was around the time when it wasn't that common to do so. We've seen them now kind of launch their second fund after first closing, I believe, a $2.2 million proof of concept fund. Got it. Now they have a $20 million fund too. And it's all going towards 
pre-seed founders and the star talent within startups as well. So not just students anymore. And the whole thing behind this Eric Tarzinski-led fund is that they're, they had this community of founders that they kind of know, and it's from that pool they source. So they're not going out there competing with, you know, Greylock and Andreessen and the mega seed funds. They're essentially kind of like almost creating their own magic with their community. Yeah. Like, honestly, these days when I hear community, I kind of get a little... I don't know, anxious about what that means for diversity, because it's literally just another way to agree with yourself at times. Right. So when Eric first told me, you know, we've never invested in a company that we didn't know through someone we already knew. I was like, OK, well, that means you're probably investing in white dudes. And then he told me that the people who he gets his deal flow from are actually like 350 entrepreneurial students. Forty five percent of that cohort is female. Sixty five percent is non-white. So he's getting a sourcing engine that is diverse that's probably not been approached or able to be recognized by a Sequoia or Index or Andreessen and is able to kind of avoid big valuations while they're at it. Well, didn't your article say that they're actually often finding individuals before they even realize that they could be entrepreneurs themselves, which I think is is kind of neat. And another thing that I thought was really interesting is that Ramp is one of their investments. And that fintech is growing like crazy. And then what was what was your valuation earlier this year, Alex? Just a couple of months ago? Like- $80 trillion. <laughs> Something Wait, like this, that. This is Ramp, yeah. Ramp that competes Ramp. with Brex, the Eric Ramp Lannan's with a capital R. Yeah, Ramp <laughs> Ramp. So that's, that was pretty fascinating. I thought, wow, good for good for contrary capital. Yeah, whomever, yeah. whomever LP'd that first $2.2 million fund, congrats on your boat. Like- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to try making this point succinctly, but the interesting part about Ramp and its relationship with Contrary is that Contrary last year announced we're going to create a talent arm where we start focusing on startup employees. So people who are really shining within the organizations who maybe are interested in entrepreneurship, but aren't ready to take the jump. And then they were like, hopefully we see, you know, big companies forming out of it. But if they don't, we have a talent arm that we will help source them into our investments. So they took their community. They gave them support and resources. And when we saw by Ramp, which took a lot of those talented individuals, it all kind of went full circle. Did you guys follow that? Did that make sense? I'm like 95% sure I got that. I was excited about Ramp because if five of their first 50 employees were introduced through Contrary, it shows that community that Contrary has created is not an ignorable subset of people. Yeah. It's working. It's working. Yeah, it's working. The The proof is in the pudding in this case. The proof is in the actual numbers. So- Let's broaden our lens on what community means and talk a little bit about Lita Taub, who I mentioned earlier on, because she is leaving the community fund, which Natasha, I believe, was a venture capital fund designed to invest in companies that had a community element. That and I think a lot of it was she wanted to invest in a way that was very community forward. So she you know, crowdsourced a number of scouts slash investment partners that would help her find deals. This past week, she announced that she is leaving it, but she is still staying in the investment game. She's actually moving to somewhere in Latin America with her husband, and they're going to continue to be investing and building. Okay. So not really a mark against community, more of an indication that just she maybe had outgrown that particular investment vehicle. But it does seem to be that community, it was the thing that was discussed kind of in the earlier, like when Discord was kind of blowing up and has now become like a de facto element in, in many startup pitches and ideas and so forth. It's a bit like AI was a couple of years ago. Like I'm just hearing it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we've mm-hmm. diluted the meaning. Although, of course, as we've seen in this conversation, it can mean different things. But I wonder if it's like it kind of being overused, if that makes sense. Yeah, I see yeah. your point. I see your point. Like some people are kind of using it for the sake of using it to because maybe now it's cool to use the word community. But there's like such a fine line between actually trying to create a community or just trying to create customers. 
that love you <laughs> and will give you money. And Marianne, I know you talk to so many fintechs every day, all day, and a lot of them are consumer focused. Are you seeing them lean on community in a way that's impressive? Or mm -hmm. do you feel like a lot of it's like, I want you to give me the money down the road? <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, this week I covered a company called Copper Banking and, and mm. their target market is actually teen customers and their model is, you ready? Community, right. Hey. right, okay. It's based on community, but they do have, they have experience with another startup that they founded, that these founders called SnapRaise, it's raised over like $90 million. And that company allowed teens to fundraise through their schools with a community focus. Okay, okay. so copper banking is kind of emulating that model. And they're also like, they're using youth ambassadors to promote the platform through schools, clubs, of sports teams they're talking to like coaches athletic coaches in high schools to help introduce the concept so i think that's fascinating and they say that this is also leading to dramatically lower customer acquisition costs than uh -huh. yeah uh -huh. <laughs> marketing so yeah. who who wants to talk about cac because cac is one of my favorite <laughs> things and i have i have written more about fintech cac I think than anyone else in the world, which is not so. <laughs> not really something that I'm proud of now that I've said it out loud. But Marianne, uh, to make sure that I'm following your point, if you have a community, right, and the community is a way to engender conversation or, and, you know, I don't know, fr fraternal feelings around a certain topic, theme or business, uh, and you want to get customers for your business, well, then you already have a bucket of folks right there. You don't have to go out and find them. You've already essentially found them. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's a it's a combination of things, right? It's a marketing strategy. And it's just also like it's a it's a way I feel like it's kind of old school, right? As opposed to the channels that we're seeing a lot more of these days with like social media or, yeah. you know, different tech first marketing strategies. So I feel like this kind of goes back a little bit. And, and I like that in a way. Yeah. The community happy. to me, seems to be relatively innocuous and kind of nice thing versus something that seems pernicious, like growth hacking. But right. I will say we saw some other examples about community and the impact it can have uh, recently. One of which is from Robinhood. Now I know they went public, but they were very recently one of the unicorns we paid the most attention to. And a data point that came out today was that Robinhood's COO said that Robinhood Snacks, which is their newsletter. Also, I think it's a podcast as well, maybe. Yes. The newsletter has, well, let's just play a game. How many subscribers does Robinhood Snacks have? Let's guess. I actually know it because I saw the tweet. Okay, so Marianne, how many? <laughs> oh my God. I have no clue, but I admit I am a subscriber. So oh, this no. is a fun game. I mean, Marianne, you have to guess. You can't, the, you, the rule on equity is if the game is announced, it's like Squid Games. If you, if you don't play, you get shot. <laughs> oh my God. What kind of pressure is that? All right. Um, Two million, five million. I don't know. 20, 24. <laughs> okay. 20, 24 million people. Million. Wow. And that that is a an engine that I'm sure drives quite a lot of signups to Robinhood's core product, which leads to monetization. So through the lens of media, through the lens of ambassadors, through the lens of, of really pick your poison, it does feel that building a, a micro movement or community, if you will, around your product does seem to be a thing that we are never going to hear the end of. And maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> All right, let's pivot. Uh, Natasha, take us into the next bit. Yes. So we're going to talk about Africa. I know we talked on a Wednesday episode about it probably a few months ago, but we are back because Google is mm. back. Two news items to know is that Google has set up a 50 million fund to invest in African startups. And it's also confirmed that it will be pouring 1 billion in investment dollars into Africa, I believe more to support digital transformation. So one of their projects will be a subsea cable to enable faster internet speeds, also skills training, low interest loans. Google is entering Africa. How do we feel about it? I mean, it almost feels late. Yeah, it, I was surprised. Like, I was like, really? You know, had you have you not been investing 
in the region before? I, I'm sure they've done some stuff, but to me, like, the, I can't recall Google making a concerted push to get our attention by telling us right. how much money they're putting into the, the continent. But to me, this is part and parcel of the story we've been covering all year, which is that rising venture capital interests, rising smartphone penetration, rising startup activity. Google, a bit like Facebook, grows when the internet grows. And so I guess this all kind of fits into that. Marianne, is this enough money, do you think? I think for now it's a good start. But mm. one of the things that, that we've talked about is if you if you look at Africa, I we see a lot of parallels with Latin America. And I was covering Latin America from like 2017. I could see the potential in the region, the opportunity. I'm not shocked what's happening now, but I feel like Africa is a few years behind. But there's tremendous opportunity, tremendous potential there. So I think it's a good start on Google's part. I think it's a smart strategy. I think we're going to, I feel like we're seeing a lot more rounds, large rounds coming out of the continent. And that's just going to continue. Yeah. I mean, I was looking at one of Tasia's pieces because I wanted to kind of place if 50 million from Google is going to make a difference. And it sounds like what Africa really needs right now is one of these late stage venture capital firms to create a $1 billion fund. I mean, their growth deals are down 16% year over year, and only two deals closed above 50 million in 2020 compared to that in 2019. And that's in and Africa so, as a whole. That's in Africa as a whole. Okay. And so that there's like, obviously, great. Yay, seed funding is awesome. But will those startups have places to get funding locally once they burn through that cash? And like, will they be able to hit critical speed is a question that I'm not sure if we should be asking Google to answer, but is one that I have for it. Oh, we can ask Google to answer it. They're rich. F*** them. We don't have to be nice to them. I mean, Google has... How many well different said. venture capital arms does Google have? At least three, right? And GV, this would be formerly Google Ventures. Yeah, well, you know, the artist formerly known as. They also have Capital G. They have their... That's don't they have a biotech thing as well? Probably. And they also have an internal skunk horse program called Google X that spends lots of money. And they also have other bets and blah, blah, blah. The point is Google's doing fine. They should add a zero to the $50 million dollars and if, if you guys don't want to put your name on that, they can call me and tell me that I'm wrong. I will say we are seeing some other money going in. Uh, SoftBank just put $200 million into Andela, a company that uh, we've talked about at TC a couple of times, helps other companies hire developers in Africa, and then I think takes a cut of the transactions. So kind of like evidence of there being a, a strong developer base in the continent that has probably been underutilized by global companies. And Goldman Sachs is also working with a spinoff called Juven that's going to back high growth African companies with larger checks. So we're seeing like Pre-seed money and late-stage money, I just hope there isn't kind of a Series A gap there that ends up harming people's growth. But, you know, given how much capital there is in the world right now, surely some of it will go over to where there's a demand for it, right? Like you would think. Yeah, I think we're going to see that happening. I mean, I don't know exactly when, but I think as we start to see more successes come out of the region and, you know, it's kind of a, what's what's the word, like that, the... People just, it starts following like domino effect, I guess. I don't know. I yeah, can't remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like once we start seeing more successes, right, more firms are going to be like, I want a piece of that. And then they're going to come in and start writing checks. So I, totally. The, I think so. That's the first time, Marianne, I've ever heard you imitate someone else. And that was amazing. <laughs> I want more of that on the podcast. <laughs> okay. Now, listen, guys, we're going to talk about uh, one more major theme, which is which is ed tech, which is Natasha's favorite thing, because uh, it's been her beat for for some time now. But the good news is, is that we're seeing more exits, which means that we're seeing more numbers, Natasha, which means that all the stuff we've talked about is now becoming a bit more concrete. Definitely. I actually woke up to Alex's piece about Udemy found to go public. So it was like <laughs> the perfect morning coffee situation. I was just like, what is going to happen to EdTech right now? 
I was really happy to see their numbers. Alex, how did you feel? So they filed and my overall impression was that they were more B2B focused than I expected. When Mm -hmm. I thought about Udemy, I didn't even know they had a business element. I thought it was all uh, kind of B2C, kind of consumer focused. Same, same. So a couple of numbers here, just for everyone's sake. In 2019, they had $276 million in revenue. So pre-COVID, during the COVID year, when EdTech saw a big boom of demand, they ended up with about $430 million in revenue. So pretty solid growth rate there. More recently, growth has slowed down, especially because the consumer bump to revenues they saw last year has kind of leveled off. And the good news for the business is that their business incomes are rising. Natasha, this seems to be a theme that, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in edtech in uh, ex-China markets and ex-India markets, but perhaps not sold to regular folks, more sold to their employers. Definitely. Udemy had a really not easy route to the public markets. It took a while to find its sweet spot. I see why both of you thought that they were a consumer business before they filed, because it's only a recent, probably over the last two or three years, that they had moved into like Udemy for business, which is their enterprise offering where they help create reskilling programs for, for I think they had about 7,000 customers when I last talked to them. But, you know, they recently got a new president. Remember when I talked to him a while ago, he said that they had well surpassed 200 million in ARR. That's compared to a year ago when it took them five years to hit 100 million ARR. So like, I feel like when Udemy found its rhythm, it got there. Yeah. It just is like, it took a little bit. It took a pandemic, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, EdTech was a boon. <laughs> and now the question is, what do these companies do afterwards? And we're going to watch them price their IPO in the next couple of weeks and go public. So we'll have more data points to come. But what really stood out was that consumer revenue share fell from 82% in 2019 of the company's aggregate revenue. And then... It's now 69%. So a, I can do math, 13% decline, which is one-sixth of the total, which is a little bit higher than that in percentage comparative terms. But it's a, it's a pretty impressive growth story. And I think the question is, how do investors value this? It's got a strong margin, flat-ish consumer business and a strong margin, growthy business-to-business business. And I, how you value the combination of the two is going to be fascinating to see. And Natasha, I think maybe indicative of... Uh, where edtech valuations might go next year. Yeah, I mean, I think we saw like Duolingo that there was a lot of positivity. But Marianne, I'm curious, you know, as someone who covers one of probably the more booming sectors, like, does this feel exciting to you? Does it feel like eh, neutral? How no, what were your first thoughts? I'm I'm intrigued because it, I feel like it it all goes back to this remote work trend and the fact yeah. that companies are having to be more creative and look towards different types of benefits and perks for employees. Like five, ten years ago, it was the fancy ping pong tables, lots of snacks and massages. And now that so many people are working remotely, you know, we need other things to to entice them with. And so I feel like Udemy for business will probably continue to just grow and other things like it. You know what I just I just thought about, though, I think Apollo, our new corporate parents, if you will, corporate parent should buy us fancy ping pong tables for our homes. (laughs) I agree. Yeah. Why don't we have that yet? Yeah. Where's my fancy espresso machine for the house? I feel <laughs> I'm saving the world by not commuting, reducing my carbon footprint, improving the long-term Apollo return profile by allowing the planet to not explode in 10 years. I should get at a coffee table. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to stop trying to get fired. Um, Natasha, <laughs> before, we, before we wrap up, we're, we are seeing other ed tech companies pursue a business-to-business uh, focus. OutSchool and Masterclass, I think, are two examples. Yeah. So kind of as Marianne was detailing, like the benefits really used to be these offline things that were nice perks. I think Udemy sat in a different category because it was helping with skills 
acceleration. So helping someone get promoted, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But now we're seeing maybe more supplemental entertainment education focused platforms there to boost motivation, morale. We saw Masterclass recently launched an enterprise arm and offering, which I thought was just like funny. It's like, oh my God, is my company going to pay for Serena Williams to virtually teach me tennis? And there's also OutSchool, which does after school classes for students. And it's all about enrichment. Like how do we take what you learn in Spanish class and reinforce it through Taylor Swift lyrics? I feel like it's really creative. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel like employers deserve a little pressure to be giving us more benefits. So we all stay at our companies. Well, especially like for us working parents who had to deal, for example, with 18 months of having your children at home while you're trying to work, like having that as a benefit, like where they're paying for your kid to take some cool ass class. I like that. Also, we got to get Natasha a job as a pitch person because she just sold me on Spanish Taylor Swift lyrics and Serena Williams classes. <laughs> and I'm totally down for both of those. Um, <laughs> I, know, I was going to say like out school does not need to be for kids only. It could totally be for us three and we would totally engage. <laughs> for uh, sure. Sadly, we're out of time, guys. We are back Monday morning with your weekly kickoff show. And uh, Natasha and Marianne, thank you as always for hanging out with us. And we'll be back very soon. Bye. Bye.